Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It's absolutely fantastic being able to speak to you today. I know you're going to say a lot of great things with all the great things that you've done. And how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. You've had some really cool guests before, so it's nice to join that lineup. Thank you. I appreciate that. So before we get into it deeply, just start off for us and tell us. I know it's going to be a big intro, but how did you get into the world of film? Because you're not just a filmmaker, are you? You're an actress and you're a writer. You do it all perfectly well. For me, I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. And I grew up as sort of a child actor out there. And when I moved to New York at 17 to go to acting school and to train formally. And after that, when I moved to Los Angeles in my early 20s, it was at that point that I found myself really frustrated with the sort of one-dimensional roles that I was getting as an actress. And when you say one-dimensional, sorry, what exactly do you mean? I was going out for the kind of roles that they cast young girls in LA in, you know, really stereotypical, not intelligent roles, not roles that got to show any sort of acting range. There was so many just sort of horror movies, but not in the way now that they're like social commentary horror movies that have something to say, but these were sort of slasher flicks. And I was paying my bills as an actor at that point, but I felt sort of deeply unfulfilled with the kind of parts I was getting to play. And that was when I decided... I'm going to write my own feature to star in. And as I started writing that project, I realized that being a storyteller in multiple different ways, that that was natural for me. And I went and wrote and produced and starred in that first feature called Ovum. And that was what sort of got me to start. It got into a bunch of festivals and that sort of put me on the map. And then from there, I made another series that I wrote and produced. And that one I began directing on. And that sort of changed the course of my career because I'm now at this exciting point where I'm getting all of these scripts through through sort of my mega agencies and I'm getting to decide what I want to direct. And I have a number of features lined up that I have directed and I'm going to direct. So it's been this kind of exciting period of transition where so, I'm still acting, I'm still writing, but I'm also getting to direct other people's work. So going back, tell us, how did you get going to start your first feature film because it's a pretty bold brilliant piece of work it's not your ordinary indie in that way it doesn't look like a first um uh, feature film debut so how did that all get started and, and what was your main inspiration behind the film 
Well, for me, when I was starting that process, I knew that I needed to have a really established team because I knew that I might have something to say and I might have a voice, but I was ostensibly a green filmmaker. And I knew that the one thing I really had going for me is I had good taste. So I would reach out to people that were far along, far, way farther along than where I was and say, hey, I know that I'm doing something on a micro budget. I know that you deserve a way bigger day rate than what I can pay you, but I love your cinematography. You haven't done a feature, but you've done beautiful music videos like many cinematographers before him. And I was able to attract DPs and sound people and composers and colorists that had done beautiful work and sort of lure them into my project by being able to say like, hey, I can give you something. Maybe you pay your bills making commercials and shooting Target ads, but you ultimately want to go and make cool Aronofsky-esque surreal films. And that was what I was able to sort of make in an exchange. And I was able to level up by hiring people that were really incredibly talented. And I learned from them like I was going to film school. And that sounds amazing. And I'm guessing you also learned a lot from your acting experience of how to engage with crew members and direct people because you've been there before in that situation. It's an interesting thing because I realized how much I had been absorbing from directors that I had worked with, both both what was effective and what wasn't. Like I, there are so many directors that are only concerned with camera movement and the shots and what it looks like. And they leave actors feeling completely ignored, almost like we're just these props that are in front of the camera. And I knew that there's a balance. When a director micromanages me and gives me line readings and tells me exactly what to do, I shut down and feel yeah. you know, overwhelmed. But at the same time, if somebody gives me so much freedom that they don't tell me what's working and what isn't and giving me no guidance, I also feel at a loss. So okay. I don't, I've been able to work with my actors in a hands-on way where I trust my DP and I'll like work with him beforehand to really figure out the landscape of what it's going to look like. But on set, I'm obsessed with performances and I'm known to like not sit in front of the monitor, but to sit at the feet of my actors. And I'm just like, I'm almost in the scene with them because I'm so passionate about that storytelling element of filmmaking, just being there for my actors. So you described your passion for the performances in the in the film and your passion for directing in that way. It yeah. looked like you had some really good professional people behind the camera and in the editing mm-hmm. room. Because it's yeah. your debut, even though you've said to them you can't match their day rate and you've explained that, look, you don't want to shoot commercials maybe for the rest of your career. How do you persuade people like that to get on board? I think I had sort of blind optimism and incredible confidence, which now in hindsight, I don't know where that came from. Like I'm now at the point of sending out offers to name actors that I've grown up watching for this new feature. And I'm able to write them these sort of elegant letters, but I know they're going through my agents and major casting directors. But in the beginning, somehow I convinced the casting director who did Homeland to go and ask my project. And I said like, hey, you have such a remarkable eye for talent. And I know that I can't offer network TV wages, but I just believe in you and I will make it where I only need you to cast two main roles and I will handle the day player casting. And I think that passion is something that people just pick up on. If I'm excited about a project, other people get excited and didn't give them something that even though I was an early career filmmaker, I still had a script that I had obsessively worked on. And I'd been in creative writing classes over the last year, 
fine tuning this, you know, this script obsessively. So I was able to give them something that was grounded and authentic and strong. It just meant that I had to believe that I could pull this whole thing together and somehow produce this thing. And I don't know, I realized I had this ability to do that, but that wasn't the plan. Like at the time I just was like, I can do this. And then I figured out that I could while I was doing it, but I didn't even know the hurdles that I would be up against. And that may have been the best thing because I didn't talk myself out of the process as I was doing it. Excellent. And it's so easy to talk yourself out of the process. There's always those reasons to say why I'm not going to do this or why I shouldn't do this. And why we're not ready and why we should do it one day as opposed to right now. Yeah. And you feel like you will never feel ready and that you just have to force yourself. And on the first day of that first feature, when I was getting to set and I realized that, oh my God, am I in over my head? Like, can I pull this off? And it was a terrifying, scary, scary feeling. But I was like, I have to do it. I will let people down if I don't. And I'm so glad that I took that leap of faith. And now it feels a little easier. But every time it still feels like, because growth feels uncomfortable. Mm. And in order to get to that next level, you have to experience that discomfort. So for the people listening that haven't seen the film or have been unfortunately not been able to see the trailer, tell us in detail, what is this film about? It is a film about a young woman who is frustrated with her own acting career and gets a, a unique opportunity of a lifetime to sell her eggs to a prestigious egg donation clinic as she is researching what it is like for an acting role. And it's this like method acting, very meta thing of her life on screen. And like both her, it's like mirroring art imitating life, life imitating art as she goes through this process of selling her eggs and realizing is she selling her soul and sort of has a dark Faustian type of theme to it. It's a little like black Swan um, meets, you know, Mulholland drive. And it has like a darkly comedic flavor to it as well. But it was something that it was a story I needed to tell. Like what can you give of yourself to feel like you've given everything and yet it's still not enough. And it's sort of an interesting, weird tale. Why is that a story you need to tell? Is there a personal relationship with that scenario or is it something else? It was interesting. I actually funded that first movie by donating my own eggs and was able to make a substantial amount of money for the film through the egg donation process. I realized in New York state for gay and lesbian couples, it's often more affordable to get egg donors than it is to pay the exorbitant adoption fees. And I ended up feeling like, wow, I can do a good thing while also making money to fund my debut feature. So it became a very unique story of sort of writing what was happening to me and obviously making it, you know, adding the creative flourishes of creative writing. But I got to sort of delve into this experience of really giving up this part of myself and exploring that on screen at the same time. That is absolutely amazing. I had no idea people got paid to do that, let alone got paid an amount that would allow them to make such a a beautiful film like you did. I always presumed um, when ladies do such a thing, it's just for free. I I didn't know money was involved. Well, you know what's interesting? I'm Canadian. I live in in America now. Mm. And in both Canada and the UK, it is illegal to receive compensation for egg donation. Uh. But in America, there's an entire industry 
of people paying obscene amounts of money for quote unquote designer eggs, which brings up this whole moral element of is it eugenics? Like are people paying for desirable, you know, um, qualities within this, within this potential donor is what they're doing at all. Is it just that they want a baby or do they want this designer baby? There's something really this moral questionable area that I thought was really fascinating and I wanted to explore. It's not good or bad. It's just murky. So did you actually go through that situation where, um, the spoiler alert, when in the film they said, are you a genuine redhead? Yes. I had to fill out paperwork that asked me everything from your sexuality to how many partners one had been with in the past, to their hair color, to qualities that they showed as a child. And even though I was completely truthful because I knew people were obviously putting a great deal of, of trust in this process and I only wanted them to get what they wanted with their you know, child, I realized that there were many people out there in the world who could lie about all of it because they're just taking that person you know, at face value. They're saying, hey, I, if you sign this affidavit saying this is true, we believe it. And they even asked me, did I have Jewish heritage? And I don't. But they said, they basically sort of said, you know, you could just leave that blank and say that you might have it because then you could get more money. And I thought that was so problematic because people were paying extra for Jewish eggs in New York City. Why Why are Jewish eggs? I, I can't even... It's hard for me to even say this, but why do people see Jewish eggs or any other type of... I think there are less Jewish and Asian donors. Okay. And people say that in order for, you know, for the person to qualify as Jewish, from their mother's side, they yeah. need to be a Jew. So for a situation like this, if an infertile Jewish couple wanted an egg donor, they wanted to make sure that their child would qualify as Jewish. So it's fascinating. And there were so many elements within it that seemed bizarre and surreal. Like one egg clinic really did take me into an alley, take staged pictures of me and ask me, do you look more like Amy Adams or Emma Stone? Because really everyone wants Emma Stone looking eggs and that this could help my profile rise to the top. And I just thought this is bizarre and incredibly sci-fi. That is I can't believe that. Well, I do believe it. Sorry, but I mean... Wildering, I know. It was wild. And all of it, as I was writing about this process, I was going through it, and I was signing NDAs to say that I couldn't reveal, you know, specifically, you know, the hospital location or names or anything. Yeah. But I was able to gather all this incredible info just based off of almost so much from the film really happened to me. And I just obviously amplified my character to make her a hot mess in that scenario because that's far more interesting if she's hiding and has this dual life but how does that affect you on set going through what you've been through and having to act it out in front of a cast and crew it was incredibly vulnerable and intimate like more than almost anything I've ever done it felt really easy to be judged by those around me. And I know that it was a creative environment and everyone's there and trusting my vision, but there are moments that I've made choices that are so similar to maybe what that character is doing at that moment. And I just really felt like a raw nerve. Like I was really sensitive and emotional for that entire 21 day shoot. And it didn't help that it was like freezing and in a blizzard in New York city. And if you're shooting outside and it's just so cold and you're just feeling the whole time, like, Oh God, 
am I sharing too much? Am I opening myself up to too many strangers? And I want this to be truthful and I want this to ring as real, but also I just felt like I was wearing my heart on my sleeve and it was a terrifying experience. And you wore so many hats. What one of the hats do you find hardest? Now I try when I'm directing and acting to make sure that my role in that film, I'm able to wrap myself out in a few days so that I'm not splitting my day. I find it's the most difficult when I'm directing something to be able to have any time in the hair and makeup chair because makeup still, you know, needs that time and they want to do their last looks. But as a director, I need to be looking at the monitor. I need to be making a million decisions. So it's a challenge when I'm going back and forth as an actor director on the same day. As a writer-director, I'm able to let go of my script by the time I'm on set as a director, and it doesn't feel so precious anymore. So that was less of a problem. And sometimes I find it very difficult to memorize my own words as an actor saying my own script, because we tend to paraphrase and not value our own words. Like we tend to just get the gist of them but I've worked really hard to make sure the comedic timing and everything's perfect. So there were times that my scripty would be like, Sonia, you're paraphrasing again. And I couldn't throw off the other actors doing scenes with me. So I would have to be really meticulous about, it would take me 10 times longer to learn my own lines, my own script than when I learn lines for other people's scripts. So with all of this on your head, in terms of you make your films happen, there's no ifs or buts about that. (laughs) But with all of that said, When you move on now to certain projects where they're going to say, um, Sonia, can you direct this? How do you think you'll feel knowing, well, I haven't written this, I haven't produced this, I'm not acting in this. How's that going to make you feel? Wearing one of those hats instead of all four. It was amazing to me on this last project. I shot a big, beautiful movie that is an adaptation of a Japanese video game. And it was my first feature. It was written by a Tribeca Narrative Prize winning screenwriter and produced by, you know, a big production company. And for this film, I'm coming in just as a director. And really for that film, it's the producer's baby and it's the writer's baby. And I'm coming in to serve their vision. And I felt like there was this freedom of me being like, okay, well, I can't possibly know what they intended with this scene. I'm just able to know what I, as an artist, am getting on the page and what my instincts are. And they say, you know, 90% of, of directing is good casting. So I was obviously super involved with that process of finding the right actors. And then you're on set and you're doing it and you're making a million choices. And it no longer really mattered if it was my script or their script. It was just there was a job that had to be done and we had to make our days and we had to move quickly. And I just, I was so thankful to not have to have the added burden of trying to produce it or having to make sure that my crew is getting, you know, fed on time and that everyone has more meals and people aren't getting meal penalties. I was able to literally just focus on the job of directing and it was beautiful. But in the next film, I'm going to be directing and I'm going to be acting, but I'm just in three scenes. So we'll be able to get those scenes done in a couple days. And then after that, I'll be able to just wear the director's hat again. So you, um, you're going to be lazy. You're going to be so lazy. Come on. <laughs> and the other funny thing that I realized when I'm just directing, 
and I'm not doing all these other things, I have this incredible stamina where we had to have 12 hour shooting days. Yeah. And my cinematographer and I realized that we both peak at about 11 hours and could truly do 16 hour days. If union rules didn't exist and I wouldn't make all my crew members hate me, <laughs> I really, really would love to just shoot for 16 hours and be like a crazy, like Quentin Tarantino as director. Who's just like, let's make this film forever. Great. But yeah. <laughs> so one of your other projects that really caught my eye, Doomsday. I mean, when you think about the importance of a good trailer, I just, oh you know, I, I just saw that and I just thought, what a great concept. What a great trailer. Like, I'm just, I just wasn't surprised it was able to do so well for you. I mean, can you tell us about that particular project? Absolutely. Doomsday was something that I had made that first feature and then I was so exhausted from wearing so many hats that I vowed, oh my gosh, this was great, but I'm not going to do this again, maybe ever. And then about six months later, here I am writing this script for Doomsday and then gathering up a group of friends and saying like, hey, we can shoot this on a micro budget. Let's go to the Catskills the cat in New York and film this project about this millennial cult and just sort of exper uh, like ex like exploring how youthful idealism can turn into deadly extremism and how good intentions can erode. Yeah. And when we went and shot this, I had no idea that it was going to be that project that would get into the major festivals. And it was that project that I won Best Director at the New York Television Festival. And it was that project that led me to get, you know, an incredible manager and eventually sign with Liam Morris as a writer, director, and actor. And it was that project that sort of launched me. But I just did that project because I wanted to tell that story. And I loved the people I was making it with. And again, my cinematographer was able to come back and he's the one who cut that trailer. And when we sat down and we started playing with the footage and we saw what we had in that trailer, we were like, oh my God, we felt tingly. Like we felt like we were onto something. And how did it come about? Because I mean, I watched that and I kind of thought, wow, this looks like it could be on Netflix tomorrow. You know, it, it looks it looks amazing and, and such an original concept. That's what I loved, especially. It's like, I, I, I watch so many films and trailers. I'm on Vimeo all the time and, you know, Amazon and Netflix oh, and all the rest of it. And I saw that and it really, really stood out. I mean, getting that ensemble, crew and everything, makeup, great cinematography. Did you take the exact same process you took last time with your film? I did. The difference was, and I think this was sort of the magic sauce for us, is we decided to all go up to the Catskills and live. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Together, as we were playing a cult, we were really crashing all on the floor of this house. The cast and crew, we were all like lines blurred. At one point, we lost our chef. And actors started to step up and cook all the meals. Yeah, I love and that. And our hipster, organic, vegetarian meals that like we're supposed that. to be eating on screen became what we were really eating as we were making it. And 
we had this incredible costume designer who decided I, I wanted the characters to be wearing some sort of utilitarian, like burlap type thing. But she took it one step further and made everyone these like handmade costumes with like actual burlap that were designed based off of who that character was and their position and role within the cult. I see. And all things ended up just taking on this life of their own. And I felt like we were living a cult and sort of becoming a cult as we were shooting this. And it's very funny. Like I ended up having the next great love of my life. I met doing that project and I ended up meeting my best friends from actors I hired in that project. Like it was one of those things that took on this life of its own. I've never experienced that electricity that I did on that doomsday set. Like every day was a joy. Like we were lying in fields and hanging out in brooks and rivers and like eating strange fruit and filming it all. And I felt like somehow we captured that on camera and it just felt like magic. But I'm sure that, you know, the nucleus of that project, you'll take with you on other projects. Am I right? Yes. I definitely know that even as projects and budgets grow and the stress and expectation that people have of me to make something that is worthy and to make money and all of the commercial elements that are now a reality within my career. If I can just fall in love with what I'm shooting each day and want to just not leave set and not leave this world, I feel like as long as I can fall in love with my projects, there's something genuine and true about that. And so many people are writing and making things that they feel like should be commercial and that people theoretically might like this thing because it's a trend right now. And then they end up with a project that even they're not in love with. Like it's there and pandering and trying to get people excited about it. But if you're not in love with that project, I feel like there's a chance then that maybe no one will ever like that project. At least if I'm passionate about what I'm doing and I've made it for myself, there I've accomplished something. I can't control whether anyone else will like it, but it's at least an element of me and that's truthful. So I've learned to just put so much of myself into my projects and maybe people will love them and maybe people will hate them, but at least they're authentic. And that came from making Doomsday and Odom for sure. And it certainly looks like it when you watch them. I mean, uh, they're, they're fantastic. And it feels like what you've done, you've done it. I mean, you've, you've kicked the door down. You've not, um, you've not waited for anybody to, 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 hand you anything which i completely admire and agree with but one i think of... that we can't wait for permission to create things like if i had waited until i'd had the ideal budget or until other people were giving me money i wouldn't have a career right now like it had to i had to be proactive and yeah. now that people are paying for these projects and paying you know like my livelihood comes from the films and projects that i'm making and writing and directing and acting in If I had, like, people keep on waiting until that comes to them before they make that first project, but that's not realistic. Like, if we're not willing to invest in ourselves, no one else is going to invest in us. Exactly. And yet there are nepotism examples of people that, you know, find ways around that. But for the most part, I think you have to put blood, sweat, and tears into those first few projects before anyone else will trust you with their money. You previously mentioned about your agent. You've got a brilliant agent now. Yes. One, one of the top, top agents. Even so, why did you feel you had to move from New York to Los Angeles? What are the key differences for a filmmaker? I had kind of a unique journey in that I had, I had managers 
but I didn't yet have an agent. And I had made Doomsday and I was winning these festivals with it. And I got asked to be a speaker at South by Southwest, one of the major festivals in the U.S. And when they asked me to speak on their episodic TV panel, I was with these huge people, like giant guests from, like there was someone who was going to be there from Blumhouse and who did Get Out. And there was someone who did Wild Wild Country for Netflix. And then I was like the indie creator on this panel with huge people. And I realized at that point that I had a platform and I used that by, I emailed, cold email, which they tell you to never do, the big agencies and said, hey, I am a filmmaker and I'm a speaker at South by Southwest. I would love to come in and meet with you. And at first, you know, you get people ignoring you. But yeah. then one big agency responded. And as soon as that agency said, yes, we'd love for you to come in. I then emailed the other big five and told them I was meeting with X agency. And then suddenly they all agreed to meet with me. And it became a little bit of a bidding war of once I got an offer from one, wow. the others were like, we want Sonia too. And it went from no agency to signing with one of the two biggest in the world. And it just came from, like, there were so many people that wait until they win Sundance and then the agents yeah. pursue them. But in my path, I felt like I was ready for it. And I felt like if you don't ask for something, you can't, you know, it's a guaranteed no. Yeah. And, and then when I signed with them, they said, hey, we're going to set up meetings for you in LA. And I said, okay, because they said all of the scripted drama departments at all the major studios are in Los Angeles. Yeah. And even though those studios have headquarters in New York too, they all deal with comedy and late night like talk shows. So they said, if I wanted to be doing pitching to the Netflixes and the Amazons and everything and HBO, those headquarters were in LA so I fly out one day and I'm meeting with my agents at William Morris and it's like the big signing meeting. And I tell them that it's August at this point, And I say, Hey, I'm planning to move there sometime in the fall. And then one of the agents said, Sonia will be here in two weeks. And I was like, Oh, wow. okay. This is happening right now. And wow. a week later, I moved out of my Brooklyn apartment and took a leap of faith and moved to Los Angeles. And Good on you. And it ended up being the best thing that I ever did because I it, I realized that they weren't wrong. It's a long game. You go and meet these studios, but they don't hire you that first time. It's a meet and greet. They want to see that you're a cool, chill person. Yeah. And, and then you foster those relationships. And I was giving people at the studios monthly updates on my progress. Like, hey, I entered this screenwriting competition and maybe I'm a quarter finalist. Or, hey, I made this short film. Here's a trailer. And after I did that long enough, suddenly networks started to know me. And then I was on a short list. And then I started to get jobs. So I had to do all this groundwork and I needed to be in L.A. to do it. So I'm glad that I took that risk and came out here. And I'm glad for you. And I'm glad for that story because that has been one of the most inspirational stories on the podcast. You, oh, you summed up a, a leap of faith and what it can do for you. And it's not really just a leaf of faith. And what I mean by that is you've done the work that's provided you with the concrete reason to make that leap. Right. Like you have to have a sample of work to send to these people. Yeah. But I was to write an unsolicited email to A24, my favorite company, and yeah. say, hey, I do dark, provocative, cerebral work. We're not gonna, I'm not asking them to read a script or doing anything that will take time. But I was able to send them a link to a trailer to my project Doomsday. 
and just be like, hey, I would love to meet with you. And then from that, they called me in. But if I hadn't given them work that resonated with them, I couldn't have gotten that opportunity. But also if I made work like so many indie filmmakers do and don't share it, and then you just end up, you know, with it on a hard drive in your basement, and that still doesn't advance your career. So you have to make the work, but then you also have the moxie to get it out there. Otherwise, neither thing can really ever happen for you. Yes. I've, you know, I've spoken to, um, not necessarily on a podcast, but in person, filmmakers that have made the work, and it's either um, on, on a hard drive somewhere, or they've put it on YouTube, but, you know, if you don't promote stuff on YouTube or right. whatever. Very, like the algorithm won't favor you. Yeah. And for film festivals, especially television festivals, they were the things that really gave me credibility because they all had sponsors that were like HBO and Netflix. And when I was able to enter my work there, and then I had the good fortune of winning those festivals, and suddenly that gave me a platform. People were like, oh... The second you add award winning to your name, people will take you seriously, which is silly because the work is the work and it doesn't really matter if you win awards, but it made them feel like they could risk money on you. Yes, um, it certainly is. And, and another risk. I mean, you're on a podcast now. I'm on a podcast. I'm, I'm talking to you on this podcast and you've worked with one of the, in my opinion, best podcasters out there. What was it like working on on the corner of ego and desire with Alex Ferrara. How did that process go so down? So much fun. I love Alex Ferrari so much. And it was such an interesting experience doing his film on the ego, on the corner of ego and desire, because it was another leap of faith thing. Yeah. He reached out to me. We had a Skype audition, basically like an interview talking about the process, how I work as an actor. And 12 days later, I was being flown to the Sundance film festival where I'd never been before yeah. and I'm followed around with a camera and we're doing like a spinal tap as mockumentary as he's like following me and two other actors experiencing the clusterfuck which is Sundance while we really are and then like playing with a fictionalized version of ourselves and that was the most fun ridiculous cool experience mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful that Alex hired me for that movie and how long was the shooting process? It was crazy. It was like fast and furious. And it was Sundance is freezing. So the whole time, you're, it's, the film is supposed to take place over 24 hours at Sundance. So I made the foolish choice of wearing leather pants. And oh. then my character, the whole time that we're shooting, I'm having to freeze in these leather pants. And, you know, it's like days at the festival in real life. Yeah. But on screen, it's all, you know, like, you know, over the course of the day. But it was really fun. We were getting to like go to these cool restaurants. Like there's my iconic pizza restaurant in Park City where all the stars go and eat. And okay. you're like mingling with people you've grown up watching at yeah. like coffee shops. And it was just such a fun experience. Like getting to go to Sundance with a film was, was amazing. Like who gets to do that? Like it was so much fun. And now that film is going to be coming out in the next month. There's some sort of release that Alex is going to talk about, but he's at the American film market right now oh, presenting, the, presenting the film. So I'm really excited to see where it ends up. I mean, looking at what we've spoken about, all, all the work you've done and working with Alex and, and so many great people, did you expect this to happen? When you first got into to acting, filmmaking, did you really believe that one day this would be happening? 
I mean, I always imagined in the far future, like this sounds really cheesy, but one of my earliest, like, it's not a memory because it obviously hasn't happened yet, but I just had this vision in my head of one day walking up to the Oscar podium and almost it being from the perspective of me looking out at the audience. And I've just always had this thought that one day I could just see it so clearly. It's very woo-woo, but that one day this would happen. And I never, I had a timeline, obviously. You can't control this career. You can't, you know, force something to happen before it's ready. But I felt like I'm going to be acting at 85. At like 97, I want to be acting. Like, I just love it. And I just felt like it's the long game and that I would never give up. And I think that, all of these things that have been happening are pleasant surprises and super exciting and super unexpected. But I always knew that I would find a way to make this career happen no matter what. And you can't always pre-plan how it's going to go, but like I knew I wanted this. And with all that being said, we all go through those moments of doubt and those moments of bad times, you know, creatively. Yeah. What do you do to manage those moments of doubt? I think they're real. I think they happen. I think we all have imposter syndrome. There are times like whenever I land a new gig, I go through this really exciting moment first where I'm like celebrating and dancing and being a dork. And then I get almost this like plummeting moment of, oh God, I'm going to let them down. Like I'm going to fail. And this this weird darkness that takes me over. And, or you feel like they've made a mistake and someone else is more worthy. And it's just... Like that's natural. And those are the highs. And yet I'm still having dark moments. Then there were times that you're not working and it's really easy to link how you see yourself and who you are in the world with your career. And then if your career isn't going well, that somehow you're less of a worthy human. And I don't know, there's something that's really terrible about that because obviously they're not really linked but my identity of who I am as a person has been so intertwined with who I am as an artist for so long that when things aren't going well or there's brief periods where you just feel really down on yourself it's you just have to know that the act of moving forward and showing up and sitting in front of your laptop and writing those pages and doing that work that that's just as important as the highs of succeeding. Like to me, there's just something comforting in knowing that I just need to keep on doing the work. I can't guarantee success or awards or any or money, but as long as I keep doing the work, I feel like my life has value. So I just try to just force myself to keep going, even when sometimes it doesn't seem like I can see where we're headed. Do you think the problem with that of linking yourself to your job, not just you, I mean, for loads no, of people. Li- yeah, you know, if you, do, do you think that's because of what society tells us? I do. But I also think it's because as artists, we love what we do so much on such a visceral level mm-hmm. that sometimes there's something really confusing about the experience that we feel when our art is well-received. It can feel a whole lot like being loved for who we are. And you get sort of addicted to that positive feeling 
of like when I'm making art, I feel like I'm showing myself and therefore I feel like I'm being seen. So when people see my art and respond well to it, I get a good feeling and it's really hard to separate that positive feeling from it. I don't know. It's like, I can't always separate who I am from an artist and who I am as a human, but I know I should. And I know I should strive for that. How can an artist do that? How, you know, cause like you said, we're so close to it. Right. And I'm writing things that are based off of real experiences I've had. Like I'm writing yeah. a feature right now, which might be the thing I'm most passionate about that I've ever written. And it's sort of my, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind thing based on a, oh. on a breakup. And it's so personal and it's so uncomfortable that I've been writing it for like nine months and I'm going to finish the first draft by the end of this year, but I can only ever write like a page and a half at a time because it's so painful to get these words on the page. And then I get immediately self-loathing after I go, after I write any of it, because it just feels like, Oh God, is this so personal? Is it really self-indulgent? Is this really terrible? Or is this truthful and is this helpful to other people? When you write something that's so personal and potentially so distressing towards how you feel, is there anyone you can share that with? Can you go home and say uh, to a partner or a best friend or a family member, can we just read this through together? Because I'm feeling a certain way about what's being put onto the pages. You know what's interesting? I did try. I was friends with with uh, with an ex who actually, you know, inspired part of the story. And I tried to get him to read it. And he said, Sonia, I love you and I love your work. But I just, I don't, he isn't an artist. He isn't a writer. And he just said, I don't feel equipped to look at this objectively. Like to me, it just throws me back into the experience, which I guess is what my goal is as an artist, right? Is to convey it in a truthful way. But I felt like, okay, I'm not going to necessarily, my work often does explore relationships that are actively going on in my life. Okay. And not everyone who's in my life is going to want to relive everything through my eyes on the page. Like it's an interesting cross to bear as an artist. You make something deeply personal that people across the world might react really positively to and might be really moved by it. But I can tell you the people that I've dated wish that I did not write about them. <laughs> and that's just, you know, and that's just how it goes. Like they, people would rather that you don't explore this stuff in public, but it's my job as an artist to explore the things that matter to me and I have to keep doing it. But are they creative in any way? I would so say anyone who's ever mattered to me in romantically, they are fellow artists. I try not to date any other fellow actors. If I never have to record another person's self-tape ever again, <laughs> I would be very happy. But okay. I'd say that, yeah, always I'm drawn to other artists, whether they're, you know, a cinematographer or a composer or an editor. But they don't always necessarily want to be in my work as closely as they are. But that's just, you know, part of my process. I write about what I know and what moves me. Brilliant. And, you know, and it works from what I've seen. It certainly does work. That's for sure. Um, and in the future, what, you know, if I was to pop onto your website tomorrow or next week, or if I was to go onto your Vimeo page or somewhere like that, what, what, what can I expect from you? Or now, sorry, what I mean, I mean, you know, on HBO or where are you going to be soon? For us yes, to watch your work. This new movie, um, Root Letter, that is in the edit phase right now that will be coming out next year. And it's a big, beautiful adaptation of a video game, which doesn't sound like it would be within my genre. But 
It's based on a beautiful script by a writer who won the Tribeca Film Festival. And it's about teenagers in the South that are dealing, coming of age during the opioid crisis. Oh, and it's okay. actually a really beautiful movie. And it's called Root Letter. That will be out next year. I am in the middle of pitching a TV series that I am co-creating along with somebody who's had multiple hits on HBO. So that's something that I'm very excited. That's still in the writing phase, but it's cool when you've grown up watching certain hit shows to now be working with the executive producer of them. That's amazing. So that one I'm very yeah. excited about. I can't say too much about. And then... Tell us. We won't tell anyone. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> on the corner of Ego and Desire, Alex Ferrari's movie that I'm starring in is going to be out soon. And then my show Doomsday, of course, is on Amazon where people can watch. So there's plenty out there for us to look forward to next year. Loved speaking with you. You've said so many great things and um, a super positive, interesting, insightful podcast. And I thank you so much for it. Such a pleasure. Have a wonderful day and thank you. Thank you. Speak soon.